UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, howling in the street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have a return guest back with me today. I have a fascinating guest. Um, Today we're going to be talking about Solar Warden and the Secret Space Program. Um, Basically like facts that this, my my guest has been able to draw about what's really going on in the Secret Space Program. And this is huge news because there is something that's really going on. And he's written fiction novels about it. I have the book right here. It's called Solar Warden. There's Solar Warden 1, 2, and 3. I have all three books here, but I'm just showing you the cover now. You can see the book with the grays on the front and the, uh, the, the UFO. It's great. And if you flip the cover, he used a quote from me on the back of his book. So I felt really honored by that. And who I'm talking about is Peter Fuller. He's written this Solar Warden trilogy series. Um, like he said, he it's a fiction series, but he bases his knowledge off the facts that he learns about the Secret Space Program. And he has military insider witnesses that give him these facts. So this is huge, this is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and a little bit more about my author. He's an award-winning author. Peter Ford worked in the military history department of the Glenbower Museum in Calgary, Alberta, Canada for eight years. He has studied military history for decades over the years. He's written numerous articles and lectured at major museums and universities on the subject of military history. He's also been a regular panelist at Norwest Con since 2017. Mr. Fuller has also studied the UFO phenomena since grade school. He's a member of the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, and has had a few close encounters of his own. He recently interviewed the son of a military U.S. officer of his complete father's work on several special access projects for the Secret Space Program. And I want to give him a big warm welcome to the show. Peter, thank you for joining me. How are you? Uh, I'm great, thanks. And thank you for having me on your show. Uh, this is a real honor for me. So I'm looking forward to it. We talked about this last time, but where, where did you want to go with this today's discussion? Do you want to talk about mm-hmm. the Solar Warden and the Secret Space Program? Well, I wrote book three as a, a means of being able to uh, sort of document the uh, development and um, uh, I guess you would say the uh, the uh, um, uh, the establishment of Solar Warden and the Secret Space Program. Uh, I've been researching this now since 2015, and uh, I've I've discovered a lot of information that points to the possibility that it's it actually exists. And uh, the more I the more I study, the more I research, the more I I come to that conclusion. So I've got a number of um, uh, information points here that I'd like to share with your audience, just to give them some food for thought, and uh, and maybe you know they can do their own research and come to their own conclusions. But my ultimate conclusion is is that the secret space program does exist. 
Wow. That's, I mean, like, I mean, to think that it actually exists, I mean, because we hear a lot of stuff, like, you know, mm -hmm. where, where does it start for you as far as, like, actually, where did you start to put the pieces together? Well, I, uh, <clears throat> as I said, the, the book three was, was a, a way for me to present this, this historical timeline. It actually uh, goes all the way back to World War II, and uh, surprisingly with, uh, with the Third Reich. Uh, the Nazis were, were doing an awful lot of uh, high-tech research, and um, they had a, a number of different projects that they were working on, and uh, they just weren't able to complete their development before the end of the war. And I know that I've, I've read a couple of um, uh, accounts from the Nuremberg trials where the Nazi scientists said that if we would have had two more years, uh, the world would be a much different place today. They just didn't have time. The Allies overran them and they didn't have time to finish their projects. Now, they had actually developed the atomic bomb and they tested it twice, once in a, in a, a facility in Thuringia in Germany and another on the coast of the Black Sea. And this is documented fact. There's a Netflix um, movie that uh, I'm sure I can find on, on YouTube. And I, uh, what I'll do is I'll provide links for all of this information so that your, your audience can go and they can look at it themselves. But this particular movie on Netflix documents the, the development and the actual testing of Nazi nuclear weapons. Uh, they were also working on a number of different um, uh, aircraft projects, the Horton 229, which was the first flying wing configuration uh, they were, just began test fly, uh, flying it at, right at the end of the war, and they were having problems with stability, and they kept crashing. But given a little more time, they could have uh, uh, finished their development, and they would have had a flying wing that was actually constructed out of plywood, so it was uh, radar resistant. Now, that sends a shiver up my spine, because if they would have loaded those with nuclear weapons, they could have flown through the Allies' radar and drop nuclear bombs wherever they wanted. Uh, and they were actually working on a larger version. Uh, they had developed the fighter version of the, of the Horton 229. And uh, they were developing a larger version that was intercontinental, which meant they could have reached North America. So, and then they, they had their flying saucer program, which again is documented. Uh, this is this is not just hearsay. There's uh, I've got a book here called uh, Nazi Flying Saucers, and I'll, I'll I'll put a link for uh, your your audience to be able to purchase that on on Amazon. But I mean, it documents the development two actual programs, the Vril program and the Hanabu program, um, and uh, they test flew both uh, versions. And uh, again. They, they had initially uh, developed what, they, what we call the Foo Fighters, which were, were smaller drones, and they were test flying those. Now, those were so highly classified that uh, even the, the rank and file of the, of the German Wehrmacht had no idea what they were. They thought they were allied uh, 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 craft that were being tested, but they were actually uh, the Nazis. Now, I say all of this because at the end of the war, the, the United States brought a number, a large number of Nazi scientists over to the United States through Operation Paperclip. And they continued their research here. Now, one of those scientists was, was um, uh, Werner von Braun, who actually became the head of NASA, surprisingly enough. And he was a member of the Nazi party. Um, and he just, he worked in Pinamunda with um, uh, 
uh, with other scientists and Herman Oborth was, I think, the, the head of that program. And uh, when they launched their first V2 rocket, uh, the, the news media asked uh, Von Braun, like, you know, how do you feel about this? He goes, oh, it's great. Just landed on the wrong planet. Uh, he always wanted to go into space. And that was what he, uh, you know, his main interest was with the V2s uh, to ultimately use them as, as um, uh, interplanetary craft. And so he, uh, uh, he headed NASA and uh, he wanted to go way beyond what NASA would allow him to. But anyhow, um, so that was- I got a question. This, yeah, go ahead. Where do you think the Nazis originally got this technology from? Do you think it's like, do you go down the war as far as like that this was like reptilians or that the Vril channeled someone or the Vril channeled something and the, and the you know, Maria Orsich and they, she got yeah. it, maybe a hold of some beings from El Debron and they gave her the blueprint to make these craft or do you go that far as far as conspiracy goes or where are your thoughts with where they actually obtained this? Well, the, the two programs, the Vril program was, was, um, was headed by, uh, uh, a German physicist by the name of uh, Schumann, and his niece was Maria Orsic. So the the um, uh, the, uh, the the narrative is is that she channeled some uh, some aliens from somewhere, and they provided uh, her and her uncle with the uh, the documentation and and the and the schematics for the for the real saucers. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if I would go that far, but it's, it's, it's very, very possible. Uh, I know that Herman Oberth said that they were uh, helped in their rocket research by people from other planets. And that was, a, that was a direct quote. You can actually look that up and you can find that. Now, the other pro program, the Hanabu program, was, was, um, was uh, uh, headed by a, a German in Vienna by the name of Schauberger. And he was into vortices and, and uh, you know, and that's that sort of thing. And, and we'll maybe talk about this a little bit later when you look at the configuration of flying saucers, how they're always that saucer shape. And uh, so the speculation is, is that their engines are actually um, uh, circular, uh, uh, what do you call them? Uh, sorry. Um, uh, uh, like, like tubes that they have, um, uh, uh, plasma and that running through, and that's what creates their anti-gravity effect. So the, the shape of the craft is actually uh, important in, in, in this idea of how it works. And I'll, I'll talk a, a bit more. There's, there's several um, uh, modern physicists who have looked into this, and they, uh, they've actually developed a uh, uh, working uh, hypothesis for how these work. So uh, yeah, it's, it is quite possible that there was an otherworldly influence in, in the Germans' development of all of this. And uh, so they took all of that information and they brought it to the United States. Now, what did they do with it? Did they sit on it? No, of course not. Amounts, large amounts of funding were directed to these, these Nazi scientists so that they could continue their research in the United States. And of course, the United States military would benefit. So, uh, that's an interesting starting point, but then we move, if we move forward to 1947, everybody knows that date, that there was a, a crash in Roswell, New Mexico. Now, I know that the military denies it up and down, and there are a ton of skeptics. However, there is enough, I believe, enough uh, information that, that shows that uh, there was an actual crash, and it wasn't... You you did a, a an interview with Michael Stratton and you talked about uh, home home cooking, 
uh, as, as far as UFOs go? Well, I kind of like to say foreign or domestic. Uh, and and the, uh, the crashed saucer at Roswell, I believe, is, uh, is foreign. It's, it's, not a, it's, it's not a Russian craft. It's not a U.S. military craft or anything like that. This what, was an what, actual... What, what, what draws you to that conclusion, if you don't mind me asking? Well, there's a number of factors, and, and it's not just, uh, you know, um, sort of wishful thinking or anything like that. There, there is evidence that, that, uh, that this was a craft that um, was, was not uh, from this planet. Now, a lot of people don't realize that there was, there, it wasn't two crashes, but there were two sites. The craft came down and hit the ground and, and skipped. It bounced. It left a debris field. And then it flew another few miles and then uh, crashed and, and, and stayed put basically on the ground. So there were actually two sites. And one of those sites was visited by a group of uh, archeological students from I think the University of, of New Mexico. Uh, they were out there doing a dig and they saw the crash and they went over to investigate. And they were sitting there like kind of, kind of observing when the military pulled up and they were all sequestered away and they were debriefed and, and all of this kind of thing. Um, and that was, the, that was the crash where the saucer landed. Um, Jesse Marcel found the debris field from the first strike. And, uh, and that was what he reported on. He gathered a few pieces and then went back to the, the air base and reported to Walter Hott about the, uh, about the crash. And then, of course, the military descended on both sites and, um, and cleaned them. But there was testimony uh, afterwards from several of the archaeological students as to what they saw. Now, I've got a quote here, and I can't remember if I mentioned this the last time we spoke, but I, this is very interesting. Uh, just let me read this for you. Uh, this is uh, by a fellow by the name of Robin A. Walter. He lived in Roswell at the time of the crash. And he was responding to a question from uh, an interviewer about how uh, the Roswell incident was basically forgotten from 48 until uh, the 70s. But he says, you need to have talked to some folks old enough to have lived in Roswell and other places to know that this assumption that the Roswell incident was never mentioned for 40 years is totally false. My family moved away from Roswell in 1948, and we were the butt of everybody's joke in the California schools in the 1950s that we were possibly escaped aliens uh, being the reason we left Roswell. My family was witness to the military takeover of the newspaper, the death threats all around town, and of the three covered semi-truckloads of alien craft materials that were taken away. The weather balloon cover-up story does not take up three heavy trucks to haul away or require army cleanup of the area for two weeks after the incident. I recall the military weather balloons were actually common knowledge in those days and not something that requires a lot of military brass and others to go around the county making death threats, nor were the remains of any of the weather balloons large enough to take more room to haul away than the trunk of any 1947 Chevy coupe by one small man. So here's an eyewitness who <clears throat> basically says, uh, you know, there was something going on there and it wasn't just a weather balloon and you don't make death threats over a weather balloon, <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and I, I remember an interview by the, the daughter of the, uh, the, the local fire chief uh, where two military men came to their house and uh, I guess dad had shown her or had taken her uh, somewhere where she could see something and they took her into a back room and they told her, they said, if you say, speak about any of this, 
uh, you know, they'll find your bones out in the desert, you know, in 20 years or whatever. So you threaten a, like a child. Uh, she was, I think she was seven or eight at the time uh, with, with a threat like that over a weather balloon. Why? Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense, you know? So it's, it's, there's, there's that. And there's a number of other, and I'll give you links to all of this so that your, your, uh, your readers or your, your, uh, your viewers can, can have a look at this. But I mean, there are, are um, signed depositions by Jesse Marcel, by Walter Hott, by uh, a number of other people who worked on the base at that time as to what they saw. And so, uh, you know, and these of course are like kind of, kind of like deathbed confessions because they were threatened as well. And uh, so they, you know, they, but they, they documented their, their testimony and they've got it down there and it's, uh, it's on the internet, you can find it. And, and so it, it just, there's, there's too much information out there yeah, to say I, that nothing happened. Yeah, so. I, I agree something happened, but what I was thinking was like, how did this turn into such a huge operation to where we're now, we have solar warden and we're, we're actually in the, our solar system cruising around. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, because here's what I'm saying. Like, if you watch like shows like Linda Bolton Howe, and, you know, mm-hmm. she talks about that we have like spacecraft destroyers. One's called the Hill and Cotter, you know, named after army generals, but these are our, supposedly our, our, our starship, our battleships that we have. You know, yeah. we know. And, and, and what's interesting is if we go back to Gary McKinnon, who hacked into the, the Navy's, uh, you know, computer system, I, I don't, can't remember if you verified that or if you thought that was faulty, but he, he seemed to have found something that showed we have these destroyers, too. Mm-hmm. Somewhere along the line, I guess our technology goes from just these UFOs. But now we have these destroyers and we're, mm-hmm. we have a full fledged program called Solar Warden, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very long process. I mean, it, it started in '47, you know, with the retrieval of this this crash, this crashed saucer, and then there was another one that crashed in Aztec, New Mexico, uh, in in '48. Uh, and so what happened was, is the military was gathering all of this this um, wreckage, and uh, it, uh, they were taking it to these these Nazi scientists who were already working on anti gravity programs. And uh, and what they were doing is they were they were um, deconstructing it and and uh, trying to reproduce it. And we hear stories about, um, you know, Area 51 and, uh, you know, and their um, uh, their crash retrieval and their their back engineering of of uh, of alien spacecraft and all of that kind of thing. The the way I look at it and, of course, this is this is not, um, you know, uh, uh, complete confirmation, but. There's just too much information out there for it all to be false. And especially with regards to, you know, the, um, uh, uh, the development of, of this kind of technology with, with uh, uh, the use of, of back-engineered alien craft. So uh, <clears throat> there's, there's the, 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 the weight of evidence in, in terms of, uh, you know, all of this. And you know what, with, with regards to Gary McKinnon, it's the same with, with uh, Roswell. If the military would have just gone, ah, mm, no big deal, then we would have thought, okay, there's nothing there. But what they did was they tried to extradite the guy. They wanted to to jail him for 75 years for for spying on the Pentagon and everything and for what he found. And the reason why they backed off on their their prosecution of Gary McKinnon was because if they did prosecute him, they would have to do it in in open civilian court because he wasn't military. And at that point, they would have had to allow him to bring forth all of this information as evidence in his defense. 
And as soon as they found out about that, they said, oh, okay, let's just, let's not go there. Yeah. So there's obviously something they were covering up, right? Yeah. And they didn't want to become a public record. And so that was the only real thing that saved Gary McKinnon from going to jail for a very long time. That and the fact that, that the British government refused to extradite him. Um, but I mean, the Americans could have gotten around that. Uh, but yeah, the, the thing is, is, is uh, it's the military's reaction to a lot of this is evidence in itself with, uh, you know, so, but the thing is, is, is there was like in the 1950s, there was a ton of research going on in anti-gravity technology. Uh, all of the major aerospace corporations had uh, established their own departments for the study and development of anti-gravity uh, technology. And it, it wasn't until late, the late 1950s that all of a sudden it was like somebody just closed a door and there was no more talk. I mean, you could find articles in Popular Mechanics and all of these other technical manuals and everything. And then all of a sudden it all stopped just like that overnight, literally. And so the, the speculation is, and, and it is speculation, but the speculation is that somebody had a breakthrough and the military said, okay, we've got it. Now, no more talk about it. And they and what they did was they just kind of closed the doors and they continued their de their development behind closed doors, and uh, to the to the point where now they own the proprietary technology and they're not giving it to anyone. I know recently there's been an awful lot of talk about disclosure, especially with the Tic Tac videos and that sort of thing, uh, and everybody's excited because they're thinking that finally you know the military is going to open the doors and say yeah this is what we have. But the thing is, is um, during the Manhattan Project, and I'm, 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 I'm skipping back here, during the Manhattan Project, uh, there was a group of people on that project that thought that the United States should not be the only country in the world to have atomic uh, bomb technology. So they turned around and they sold it to the Russians. And the military doesn't want that to happen again. Now, there's, there's a number of things I could show you. There's... there's um, the, the B-2 stealth bomber, uh, this is, oh, I gotta get this in front of the camera, okay. Um, so this is an article from uh, Aviation Week and Space Technology, March 9th, 1992. And again, I'll put a link uh, to that, um, uh, or I'll, I'll send you a link for that. But anyhow, it talks about the flying capacitor. And what it is, is that the B-2 bom stealth bomber actually uses anti-gravity technology. Uh, it's uh, what they do is they positively charge the leading edge of the aircraft and they negatively charge the, uh, the engine exhaust. And what that does is that creates a gravity hill in front of the aircraft and, uh, uh, or a gravity slope in front of the aircraft and then a gravity hill behind the aircraft that pushes it forward. Now this thing wants to engage this and, and I've, uh, if I can, I will find the video because I watched a video, uh, of the um, of the cockpit of, of the B-2 stealth bomber in flight, and they panned across the control panel, and on the on the far right side there was a, a display there for the electrogravitic system, and it shocked me. I thought, "What? This is on the internet, really?" Anyhow, uh, what they do is once they engage this this electrogravitic system, this aircraft can fly indefinitely. It doesn't need refueling. So they can they can literally fly around the world using this electrogravitic this anti-gravity uh, system, and this is on a current uh, deployed uh, aircraft that's being that's being used by the U.S. military. So that's on the stealth bomber. 
Yeah, the B-2 stealth bomber. So does the, the U.S. military have anti-gravity technology? Absolutely. And the B-2 is living proof of it. So, uh, you know, That's and there's, news. there's, sorry? That's huge news. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. Well, not only that, but there's a really good book. And again, I'll give you a link to it. Uh, just let me grab it here. Um, I don't know if I have it bookmarked or not. This is uh, Anti-Gravity Propulsion by Dr. Paul Levillette. And um, <clears throat> he talks about how uh, there are several um, people that he knows uh, in, the, in the airline industry who have worked for um, special access projects uh, with the military. And one of his friends was actually working with um, uh, developing uh, a similar system and, and what he did was he approached, when he was finished the project, he approached the military and he said, you know, he said, this would revolutionize the aircraft industry. We wouldn't have to use uh, like fuel, jet fuel anymore. We could just use this electrogravitic system. And he said he wanted permission to be able to uh, uh, develop this in a, in a civilian setting. And the military just said, nope, it's ours, can't have it. And, uh, and the reason why, again, I come back to this is because they don't want other countries like Russia and China uh, to develop this technology on their own because then they would lose their advantage. You know, I don't know if you remember back in the 80s when um, uh, Gaddafi uh, was uh, killing Americans all over Europe uh, with, with, um, with uh, 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 you know, um, bombs or whatever but um so the americans response was to bomb tripoli uh, uh uh gaddafi's capital and so they sent in two f-16s and they bombed his house and he got the message and he backed down well at that time they had the f-117 stealth fighter uh uh fully developed and ready to deploy but they didn't want to use them because they didn't want the world to know that they had them and they didn't actually use the F-117 stealth fighter until the first Iraq war. So, you know, there was a stretch there of about eight or nine years where they just, they sat on the technology because they didn't want anybody to know they had it. So the question, do you think this would be, this would come up if things were happening? Like, do you think like we, we would see some of our technology come out to play if we were to get into an altercation with another country now? Like, it looks like, you know, like things are heating up, but like, what do you think the U.S. has in their back pocket in case something happens with like Russia, God forbid, or China? Yeah. Well, you see, that's where we, we, uh, we can skip forward to the TR-3B, right? Um, it's a triangular craft. And I mean, it's been, you know, talked about uh, extensively over the past years, especially since the late 80s. Uh, there, was a, there was a wave of sightings in Belgium uh, of the TR-3B. And this triangular craft with uh, with a, a white light on each uh, point of the triangle, and then a red light in the center. And they were actually um, uh, they were tracked on radar. Uh, the Belgian Air Force uh, sent fighters up to intercept them, and this went on for over a year. And there were thousands of sightings. And uh, so it's uh, it's speculated that TR stands for Tactical Reconnaissance. So it's a it's a it's a fighter craft. But um, it's, it's far beyond anything that anybody else has because it flies like a flying saucer. It can, it can rise off of the ground uh, with 
without making a sound, it can shoot off into the into the um, uh, into the atmosphere. Uh, you know, it, going from like zero to to a hundred thousand feet in less than a second. And I can talk about how that works. Um, but um, you know, it's it's basically a a, a, a UFO. That well, you know, you know what I love. I love the fact, like, if people look into your history, like you're a military historian. So mm -hmm. I love the fact that you bring that to the table because you bring like real facts to the table, and I, and that's what I love evidence. You know, I, right. I believe a lot of like the secret space. Like, I have a lot of secret space people on my show. I'm I was a little mm -hmm. bit skeptical of the twenty and back thing at first, but now I'm starting to think, well, like, well, first of all, we don't know what they have, right? Like we, we yeah. can't doubt anybody because we, we don't know what they have. They're so ahead yes. of us, it seems like. And then it seems like, why would all these people start getting these, these memories, right? I mean, like, mm -hmm. I don't think everybody's lying. You know, I don't want to think like that anyway, but like, yeah. I, but like, there has to be something to that, right? It, it would seem like there would have to be like, there, there seems like there's something bigger going on all, all, in, in the whole general picture of everything yeah. right it just seems like there's there's too many um it's like fishing and there's there's a lot of bait but you know like it's it's just like i don't know do you, do you know what i'm trying to say yeah i do and that's what i'm that's the point i'm trying to make is the preponderance of evidence is so great that there has to be something to it now that's you know evidence uh uh, uh you know a large amount of evidence is not necessarily evidence of of um of existence, but the the more evidence that you you compile, the more you realize, okay, there's something to this, right? And um, uh, unfortunately, with the twenty and back thing, the, the the only evidence they're able to provide is anecdotal. Yeah, so it's it, it limits it, it limits us in our in our uh, believability. But you know, with, with what I've found through the years, uh, with uh, with the other aspects of the secret space program, uh, I have to I have to conclude that there's something going on. And uh, how big it is, we don't know. But the thing is, is, is there is evidence that, that says, okay, there's something here. And, you know, you need to stop and maybe take a look. Uh, going back to the TR3B, and, you know, I know these guys, uh, these guys are experts. I'm not a physicist. Uh, you know, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I'm not military in, in that I didn't serve in the military. But I have studied it. But the thing is, is, I mean, these guys, you know, that you see on on TV, like Lou Elizondo and and uh, and all of these other fellows, uh, you know, they say that there's just they can't figure out how these things can fly without killing their their occupants. Well, <laughs> here you go. I'm going to give you that uh, uh, that information right now so that you can understand that these UFOs can actually fly with people in them and they don't they don't get hurt. hurt. Now, I know that. Um, that Lou Elizondo works with a, a physicist by the name of Hal Puttoff. And he wrote a paper about the fact that um, uh, inertia, okay, is, uh, it's, uh, it's what he calls a, a, a zero-point field Lorentz force. And it's, it's an electromagnetic interaction. And it, it can be manipulated and it can be shielded. So when you are driving in your car and you go around a big curve and you kind of feel, you know, you're being pushed to the outside of that big curve, that's inertia. Okay. Well, that's an electromagnetic interaction and you can shield it. Now, if you can shield it, then that means uh, you can sit in a flying saucer with a one G uh, 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 situation and you can you can accelerate from zero to 150,000 miles an hour, and you won't feel it. 
because the inertia that would push you to the back of the flying saucer and turn you into so much salsa uh, is, is being shielded so that you're in a controlled environment where that won't happen. And you can take a 90 degree turn at 60,000 miles an hour. And again, you won't feel it because you, the inertia that you're in is being, uh, well, the inertia that's created by that is, uh, is shielded from you so that you don't feel the effect of it. You're still sitting in that 1G environment, right? And again, I'll send you a link to, uh, to a video that explains all of this. And this is how these craft are able to make such radical maneuvers without any kind of harm or, or, or disability to the occupant of the craft. So we have our TR-3B or we have our Tic Tac, right? And it's sitting on the surface of the ocean and the FA-18s are approaching. And all of a sudden it shoots from, the, from sea level to 150,000 feet in less than two seconds. And they're going like, how could anybody survive that? Well, they can survive it with inertial shielding. And I mentioned that in my books too. I, I explain it in, in my novels. So, uh, so the thing is, is, is this is not like magic and it's not, you know, um, alien technology that's so far beyond us that we just can't understand it. It's actual um, uh, physics that we understand now. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll also include a link to Hal Putoff's article where he talks about inertial shielding and how it functions, how it works. Now, this also, the inertial shielding, because uh, when, you, when you have um, Einstein's uh, uh, relativity formula, E equals mc squared, okay, the m in there is inertial mass. It's not gravitational mass. So if you can shield that inertial mass, you can accelerate to light speed without having ever-increasing amounts of power required because that mass is shielded and it's, it remains at 1g. And what that does is that allows the acceleration to increase exponentially. And again, uh, um, Dr. Putoff uh, mentions that in his article. So you can have a craft that can travel at light speed or faster. And, uh, and um, you don't need increasing amounts of power to get up to light speed uh, because the inertial mass negates that. Because it, the, the, the theory that Einstein put forth was the, the closer you get to the speed of light, the greater your, the mass of your object increases and the more power is required to move it towards the speed of light. Well, if you can shield that inertial mass and have it remain the same, then you don't need ever increasing amounts of power, right? You, you can have a, 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 an amount of power that's, that's, um, that's feasible to be able to produce, excuse me, to produce uh, so that you can send that, that craft up to light speed and beyond. So, and uh, I want to talk about just real briefly here. Uh, there's a fellow by the name of Mark McCandlish, and he was an aircraft illustrator. And he, uh, I'll just find it here. He, um, uh, in 1988, he was invited to an air show by a friend. He said, you know, he said, come with me and let's go to this air show. And, uh, and so uh, uh, he and his, he and he was going to go with this with this friend of his, but he had a, a job come up that that required he had to have it finished over the weekend, and so he wasn't allowed to he wasn't able to go. So his friend went, and he and he he met a a, a, a general there that that he knew he was an acquaintance of, and um, 
so they were at the air show and the general said, come on, let's go see the real air show. And this friend didn't know what, was, what he was talking about. So they went over to a hangar. This was at Norton Air Force Base in 1988. Um, and so they went over to this hangar and they went through security. And this, this friend of Mark McCandlish, uh, he didn't have clearance, but the, the general got him through anyhow. So they walk into this hangar and there are three flying saucers hovering above the, the, the surface of the, of the hangar. And there was a demonstration going on and there was uh, somebody talking on a podium and that. And this guy couldn't believe what he was seeing. And, and there were also other aircraft there that, that were highly classified. Uh, there was the TR-3A and uh, a number of other air aircraft. Ooh, and this guy I've was- i never heard of that. What's the TR-3A? Oh, that's the first version of the TR-3B because the B is the B version, right? It's like the Mark II. But um, uh, I've got a, I, there's a video called uh, Mark McCandlish and the Flux Liner. And I'll send you a link to that. And he tells the whole story. But what, he, what, what happened was, is, is they had these, these uh, three flying saucers there. And um, so he, this guy was also an aircraft uh, uh, illustrator. And so he was looking at everything. And they had several panels on the side of the, of the, the flying saucer removed so you could see the interior. And so he was scrutinizing that and studying that. And then uh, the general realized, you know, you're really not supposed to be here. We need to like just leave right now or you're going to be in big trouble. And so am I. But anyhow, so he called Mark McCandlish on Monday and told him what had happened. And so Mark picked his brain and, and said, you know, like, tell me what this thing looked like. And, 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 you know, what did you see in that? So what he did was he took the, uh, the notes that he got from his friend and he came up with this illustration. And I'm sure that everybody has seen this on, uh, on the internet somewhere. That, this that is the saucer. Like what, what uh, Kexberg was. Remember, did you remember the Kexberg? Yeah, episode? Kexberg. Yeah, that's, that's a different story altogether. But um, this particular uh, uh, flying saucer, and, and you're talking about, you know, what evidence do you have of a secret space program? Well, this particular uh, flying saucer, um, uh, Mark McCandless drew up and he got into big trouble for it. He said it was the most dangerous illustration he'd ever done in his life. Uh, the military came after him. They, they, uh, they, um, uh, they froze his bank accounts. They, they uh, confiscated his classic car collection. They literally just kind of drove him into the ground until he finally hired a lawyer. And, and the lawyer said, well, they can't do that. That's unconstitutional. So he, he managed to get everything back, but it took years of legal wrangling. But the thing is, 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 you know, Mark, he came up with this illustration of this flying saucer and, and he wondered, you know, like, is this thing actually flying out there somewhere? So he talked to a friend of his who was a UFO researcher who had thousands of photographs of UFOs. And he showed his friend this, this drawing that he had done. And he said, have you ever photographed anything even similar to this? And the guy goes into his filing cabinet and he comes up with this. Let me see. Hold on. Let me... And there it is. It's a photograph of the, the saucer that his friend saw at the air show, uh, and it's in flight. So the thing is, is the military has UFOs, and this is proof of it. And again, I'll send you a link to the video, and you can watch it. It's, it's fascinating. He goes through the whole, you know, the whole process and the whole situation. But you want evidence of, of uh, the military having UFO technology? Well, there it is right there. So, and, and another thing, another point that, that I find very interesting is like I just showed you this, okay? Well, this is from the movie the, Year, the Day the Earth Stood Still with Michael Rennie in the 1950s, and this is Klaatu's flying saucer. Uh, get it up there. 
Now, it looks like Mark McCandlish's version that somebody has squished down. And the thing is, is like, how is it that a movie like that can come up with a design that's so similar to an existing, um, uh, you know, domestic uh, flying saucer? That's amazing. I don't have a, I don't have an answer to that, but you know, it, it, I just I I see these images and I I look at these configurations and I'm going, okay, well, there, that's too similar to be a coincidence. So yeah, that, that really is. That's it's really strange, right? It doesn't seem. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's a. Uh, it seems like they they get uh, that Hollywood gets privy to like information before, like like they have an insider, right? Like they they yeah. need somehow. And and I yeah I, I, like I said I don't have an explanation for that but I find it very very interesting. Um, yeah. Another thing I want to mention is I'm find the picture here. Wait, I wanted to ask you real quick. What I don't want to mess yeah. up your thought, but you remember you, in your book you talk about a couple military insiders you have that have kind of guided you um, mm -hmm. along the way in writing this book. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, sure, sure. I, I have military advisors. And um, and what they do is they they scrub my novels and 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 clean out all the mistakes that I make and and make uh, you know the narrative a lot more believable. And these guys are fantastic. They really are. But I have one friend and he I, I've talked to him about this and I've asked if I can use his name and he says no. He, he wants to remain anonymous and I have to honor that. But um, his dad was an accountant for the army back in the '60s, and he had uh, like clearance that was actually beyond the president he could walk onto any military base anywhere in in the world basically and open up their their uh their files and and do audits and that's what he did and he worked on uh auditing a number of black projects and and um special access projects and that and uh so the thing is is i mean he was of course you know all of this stuff was was highly highly classified and he, uh, um, uh, he couldn't talk about it. But, you know, on a Sunday evening after dinner, they're sitting out on the porch in Georgia, and it's a beautiful evening, and Dad's had a few beers, and his tongue starts to loosen up a little bit. And so the three boys are sitting there with him, and he starts telling them the fact that in the 1960s, um, the military had developed shields, you know, like on Star Trek. Shields up, right? And they had developed them to the point where they mounted a shield generator on a tank. And then they fired everything they could think of at this except nuclear weapons. And the shields repelled every missile, every bullet, everything they fired at it. And uh, so it worked perfectly. The only problem was, according to dad, was they couldn't figure out how to get the shields to extend underneath the tank. So the tank could literally be taken out by a simple landmine. However, if you take that same shield system and you mount it on an aircraft and create a bubble, it's 360 degrees and, and you've got your shields. Now, that's just a wild story, okay? But there are elements of that story that make me believe that it's true. And one of the things that dad told the boys was the fact that the shield generator was larger than the engine on the tank and they had to mount it on the back. And this, of course, this, this idea of not being able to extend the shields underneath the tank. Those are little tidbits of information that, that create a, a sense of realism for the story. And so, you know I, know, I know this guy, I've known him for like over 30 years, and I've never known him to tell a lie. And, uh, and I'm sure that, that the old man didn't either. And of course, the boys are going, well, tell us more, Dad, tell us more. He's going, oh, no, I've told you too much already. I can't, I can't say anything. 
But he did tell them about the fact that um, in the 1960s, when Star Trek was on TV, the military had developed uh, a phaser type weapon, a directed energy weapon that worked just like Captain Kirk's phaser. And uh, the only problem was it was prohibitive because it cost about a million and a half dollars to produce one prototype. And so they couldn't put it into production because it was just too expensive. Well, that was in the middle of the 1960s. What do you think they've got now? I mean, we're talking 60 years later. I'm sure that technology has been developed and perfected to the point where, uh, you know, they actually have, you know, phaser type weapons like Captain Kirk. So, uh, you know, and, and he told me a couple of other, uh, uh, you know, little anecdotes about uh, dad's work. He, he had a... Had a block of steel and this was like the steel that they use on the hulls of battleships it's about two and a half inches thick and it was i think he said it was six inches square and it had a hole through the middle of it and it had like the edges splashed up like you see in a slow motion video of somebody dropping something into a, into water you know and how the the edges kind of splash up and and uh and then of course they they go back down but this was actually shot by something that melted the metal to the point that it was liquid where all of these little nodules along the outside rose up and then they cooled to, uh, and they stayed there. And uh, he says, it's, it's in my mother's basement. He says, as soon as I find it, he says, I will videotape it for you and I'll send it to you. And, uh, but the problem is he lives in Georgia and his, his mom lives in, in uh, Minnesota. So he's got to get up there to visit her. But, you know, again, these are, these are just, you know, uh, uh, points of evidence that you just add to the whole and you say, okay, yeah, there's really something going on here. So it really is it's insane, right? It's, it, it's, it's, it seems like, it's like, it seems like for someone who's skeptical, like me, it seems mm -hmm. so hard to believe that we're actually out there, like interacting with other species in the galaxy, but it just seems like it, it, yeah. it all leads to that, right? Like it all leads yeah. to like, there's a lot bigger something going on and it's really happening. Like it's like, it's, it's insanity, right? I mean, yeah. Like, yeah. well, I think Richard Dolan hit, hit the nail on the head when he described it as a breakaway civilization, right? It's, it's not a part of our civilization or our culture. It's its own entity. And uh, they're, they're using technology that's 50, 60 years ahead of us. And uh, you know, we just, we just don't have a clue you know, how any of that technology works, but they've developed it to the point where they're, they're actually using it now. And I mean, there's, there's evidence. I'm sure you've seen that famous photograph of the Mars lander where, uh, you know, there's a shadow beside it and it looks like a person, the shadow of a person, or where the, the solar panels were so covered with dust that the, the rover had to shut down. And then two days later, those panels are all cleaned off. And, you know, the, the NASA people say, oh, well, it was just the wind that blew them off. Wow. Yeah, it doesn't quite work like that. I live in Canada and we have, you know, snowy winters and, you know, uh, a, a panel like that can get covered in snow and then it can be, you know, really windy for a couple of days, but it's not going to blow all of the snow off of those panels. So, you know, it's kind of a weak argument as far as I'm concerned. So I'm thinking, you know, okay, they have a, they have a base on Mars. Well, you know, maybe they're, um, uh, you know, there were, there were a couple of goof ups where they, did something they weren't supposed to do. And, uh, and you know, and we we're seeing the evidence of that. There's also that famous uh, videotape where the two NASA scientists are sitting at a desk. And if you, um, you know, if you zoom in onto the, the, the photographs in front of them, 
Well, one of the photographs is of a base on the moon. You know what? You so, know what's so weird you said that? Is I, I was just about to say, I had Mary Joyce on my show. Um, mm-hmm. She runs that website, Skyships Over Cashiers, and she used Google Earth, and she found... You know, I guess you can look at Mars and you can look at the moon with Google Earth. I've never tried it, but she does it. She's like yeah. a pro at it. And she found what looked to be like biospheres on Mars, you know, like, uh-huh. but, you know, it's not for sure, but, you know, it's, it, it looked like it could be some kind of containment where a civilization would live. And then she also yeah. found stuff on the moon too. So I yeah. don't think that at all. I, I think that's like, I think that, that there could be some kind of breakaway civilization maybe living there maybe yeah. a plan to communicate continue humanity in case humanity would end here on earth i don't know well yeah and and there's actually a theory about that called um alternative is it alternative three i think but there's also uh you know the military des- uh, developed a program called project horizon where they wanted to build a base on the moon and this was back in 1964 this was even before the first moon landing and uh ultimately uh they basically said that they canceled the program. Well, the military doesn't cancel any program. Yeah. It just goes black. It's it's like, uh, you know, the the Star Wars, the, the Space Defense Initiative, right? They they claim they canceled that. Well, I don't think they did. I think they just- Same with the remote viewing. Continued. Like, why would they cancel yeah. remote viewing if it was working, right? Exactly, yeah. And that's the thing. All they do is they just go dark because they don't want the public to know what they're, do- what they're doing, basically. And I mean, you know, it's good that, that you're a skeptic. We all need to be skeptics. We all need to look at this and don't simply accept it at face value. Okay. Do your own research and come to your own conclusions. Don't park your brain at the door when you come in the room. You know, you, you have to, you have to be skeptical. You have to look at everything and go, you know what, mm, you're going to have to prove that to me because human nature is such that we will believe what we want to believe. And what we have to do is we have to circumvent that and go, no, you know what? I'm not just going to accept this. I'm going to look into it and I'm going to come to my own conclusion based on what evidence I find. And that's what I'm challenging your viewers to do. Don't just take my word for it. Go out and look for yourself and and come to your own conclusions. So, you know, but, but what I've done again, over the, over the years with my research is that I've come to the conclusion that there is an actual secret space program. And I don't know if it's called Solar Warden or not, but I mean, that's what Gary McKinnon found. So, I mean, I'm, I'm using that because it's identifiable. People recognize it. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I have no doubt that they're up there and that they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I do think that, that there is a malevolent element to the alien experience and uh, we need to be protected from it. And that's what the secret space program is all about. So... Well, do you, do you think that, <coughs> excuse me, we go back to real quick that I, you know, I, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I, I just oh. want to go over this real quick. Like, do you think that like, because of the abductions that were going on, like, do you think the mm-hmm. government said, wait, we, we got a problem here. Something is seriously going on because it seemed like people were being taken, like, 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 like a kid takes candy. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah. we're getting abducted left and right. Do you think that could have been reason for the government to kind of, um, or do you think the government doesn't even want to protect us like that? Do you think they have ulterior motives? I mean, it's like, I, 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 I don't know if I should have that kind of faith in the government is what I'm saying. I, I, because, yeah. because they lied to us so much. But what, what do you think? Like, Well, I, 
I don't know. In my in my novels, that's the argument that I present: is that Solar Warden was established to protect humanity from from alien incursions and specifically from alien abductions. And you go back to um, uh, their their uh, polls that have been done, and they've discovered that you know this this thing is not done in a corner. This is this is global, and it's to the point where six uh, percent of the population of the United States alone has stated that they have experienced uh, an alien abduction in some form. That's now, you, you have like 38 million people in, in the United States that are your population. Well, what's 6% of that? It's in the tens of millions. This is not just some isolated little incident. People are being taken every single day and they're being manipulated and not in a good way. And I mean, you know, you can read Whitley Stryber's communion and you can, you can listen, you can read what he says about it. Now, I think that what happens with some people, and I think it's happened with Whitley Stryber is uh, the field of the um, uh, Stockholm syndrome, where, you know, you, you uh, eventually you kind of identify with your captors and, 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 and you think that they're, uh, you know, they're benevolent or whatever. But when you read the reports, and I've read hundreds of them, you know, from John Mack, from from Bud Hopkins, from from uh, David Jacobs, all of the abduction researchers and that. And these aliens are not our friends. The things that they do to people is it, it's unbelievable. And yes, we do need to be protected from that. So it's it's uh, uh, it, it, it for me it stands to reason. And again, I don't have much faith in the government either. But I think a faction of the government has looked at this and said, you know, yeah, we need to do something about this. And that's where Solar Warden comes in. That makes so. sense. That makes sense. Totally. This, this, is, this, is, this is amazing stuff. Well, let me ask you this. Is there anything else you want to cover today that we, we might have not covered that you, you, might, you think might be important for the book before we finish up? Um, I just I guess, uh, you know, maybe if, if I'm allowed 30 seconds of shameless self-promotion. No, that's fine. Just, I, I want you to promote um, as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. So this is book one. Okay. And it, it actually won an award, which, which, uh, you know, surprised me, but uh, that's Solar Warden book one. And uh, so you can see the, the cover and then this is Solar Warden book two. And uh, you know, it's a, it's a completely different story. It's, it's focuses mostly on Mars. Um, and, uh, and then this is like, you showed the, the cover of book three, this is book three. Now this is a six book series. So I'm only, I'm only halfway and I'm currently working on book four, which is Solar Warden book four, Skinwalker. Um, and it gets dark, uh, but uh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm trying to you know, tell a story here uh, over, over six books, but um, I wrote the, the, uh, uh, the manuscripts, like the, the, first, uh, the first drafts of, of every, uh, all six novels back in 2015 and 2016. And so what I'm doing now is I'm just revising and getting them ready for editing and that. So I'm currently working on book four. And um, uh, so there will be book four and then there'll be two more after that. And what, what they basically do is kind of tell the story of, of Solar Warden and, and, uh, and, you know, the people that are a part of it. Now, granted, it's fiction. I have no idea whether I'm accurate or not. But, uh, you know, from the reviews I've received, uh, people enjoy uh, the books. And uh, so I'm going to keep, uh, keep writing them. And, uh, and uh, hopefully people will keep reading them. But um, 
I guess the only other thing I want to mention is there's there's a couple of videos, and again, I'll, I'll uh, I keep saying this, but I I will uh, I'll provide you with links to all of this stuff. Darcy Weir uh, is a is a video producer, and he's done a series of uh, uh, videos on the Secret Space Program, and uh, he did one specifically on the rise of the TR3B. So he goes through the history of the TR3B and how it came around and and uh, you know what people are seeing in the sky and that. And I, I just want to uh, point out real quick here, if I can. I'm supposed um, to have Darcy on my show, by the way. So yeah. Oh, you have it. Oh, excellent. Gonna, That's great. Yeah. He's gonna he's gonna be he's scheduled for like I think sometime okay. later this month or next month or something like you know. Yeah. Yeah, he his his videos are excellent. Out too. Did you see that? It's on the. What's Secret that? Space. He has a new documentary out on the Secret Space Program. Did you see that? Um, I, I haven't yet, but uh, I haven't watched all of his videos. Uh, I just, I highly recommend. And, and anybody that's interested in this topic, yeah, you need to find his website. And again, I'll, I'll post a link and, um, and, and uh, you know, you can go through them. There's, there's quite a bit of information there, but I mean, he's really, he's a really good uh, um, objective uh, investigative reporter. And, and his, his videos show that. So there's one thing in the in the the rise of the TR3B video that he talks about. He talks about this triangular configuration that you can find in all of the space programs around the world and aerospace programs in that. So we have NASA here, uh, centered. Sorry, um, we have NASA here, and you see that red sort of um, uh, triangular shaped image there in the center. Well, he says you can find that in uh, all the way through. Uh, all of the, uh, the space programs and the aerospace programs. And while I was watching it, I thought, well, you know what? Uh, you know, going back to talking about TV and movies, well, he missed one. And this, this is the one that he missed. There's that triangular configuration, which is the, the, the crest on, on Captain Kirk's uh, tunic there. So again, there there's, seems to be this, this um, entertainment link uh, to, uh, uh, to this whole... Um, uh, secret space program uh, thing. And one last thing I want to show you, this is, this is uh, George Edmansky's um, Venusian saucer. Well, in reality, it's, it's a Nazi Hanabo saucer. Now look on the underside, you see those three nodules there? Yeah. Um, whenever, like there's, there's a lot of legitimate images out in the internet, but there's a lot of fake ones. If you see uh, uh, guns coming out of the, the, those, those, round nodules like so that they look like belly guns then that's a fake image but i know notice that there's three of them okay well here's an image of the tr3b and notice it has three nodules on each of its corners so that to me seems to be some kind of, of um, configuration that is common with you know, these flying saucers and with, uh, you know, both the foreign and domestic. And so that tells me that, yeah, okay, they actually did reverse engineer these, these alien saucers in order to create their own, um, you know, versions like the TR-3B and of course other craft. Uh, so there, there's a link there. Uh, I, I'm trying to show that there's, a, there's a, some kind of a link there with, with the way the, their their uh, anti-gravity systems work. Uh, or function. So, uh, you know, again, it's just it's just another tidbit of, of, of evidence that tells me that this whole secret space program is actually legitimate and that they're actually functioning out there. 
Now, it takes a long time to get from a crashed flying saucer in Roswell, New Mexico, to a space carrier that has a squadron of who knows how many TR-3Bs. But, I mean, we're talking about 70 or 80 years uh, a span from, from 1947 to 2022. So, uh, and, and you know, <laughs> Donald Rumsfeld, on September 10th, 2001, gave an announcement that $21 trillion, now that's trillion with a T, were missing from the military budget for the, for the, uh, the 2001 year. Uh, and what happens the next day uh, is 9-11. And who remembers Donald Rumsfeld's announcement? He was a Secretary of Defense. I, at the time. That. I know it gets talked about a lot. It's very weird. Yeah. Right? It's very weird yeah. that, that happened and 9-11 happens the next day. Yeah. So, so where did where did that $21 trillion go? Well, I think a big chunk of it went to produce those space carriers and those bases on the moon and on Mars and everything else that the secret space program is, is using. See, they may not be part of our, our, our society. They're, they're, a, they're a, um, a breakaway civilization, but they still rely on us for financing, right? Yeah. So, and, and, and if you listen to like, uh, if you remember what else happened in 2001 was... Uh, Real quick, we can just say Dr. Greer had that conference um, where Dan, yeah. was part of it, Dan's been on my show a couple of times, like where, you know, him and other military witnesses testified that we had this anti-gravity technology. But yeah. I, I also agree with you that I think maybe in 2001 was maybe when it ramped up because if yeah. you trace the timeline back when, like 88 was when Bob Lazar and, and George Knapp were, came to the forefront and that, you know, with Bob Lazar's testimony that he worked at Area 51. So I can yeah. see that, 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 that's a, that's a good place marker because that make, that would make sense as far as like a timeline. And then 2001, all that money goes missing. It, it just mm -hmm. like the, the program ramped up, ramped up, ramped yeah. up. Now we're at a place where the government can't even come back from their lies. Like they, they're yeah. so far dug deep into a lie. It's, 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 uh, it's insanity. You know? And that's why that's why one of the reasons why there will never be disclosure, like not full disclosure, because they it's it's like you know we've lied to these we've lied to the public for seventy years, we can't back out now, like you know we're we're locked in basically, like you said, but you know a lot of people say oh well you know uh, and I want to talk about Bob Lazar for a second because this is important as well and it and it factors into the whole uh, the whole scheme of the secret space program. Um, everybody says, oh, Bob Lazar never worked at Area 51. And you want to know something? They're right. He never worked at Area 51. He worked at S4, which yeah. was the base that was south uh, at Papoose Lake. He never claimed that he worked at Area 51. Now everybody was going, oh, yeah, your element 115 doesn't exist. And, you know, you're just, we can't find a record of you anywhere, except they did find a record of him working at Los Alamos. But the thing is, uh, he said to George Knapp, he said, do you want to see them test flying these things? He says, you go out to this location and he gave him a location. He says, you go out on this day of the week and you go at this time and you'll see them test flying. them." So George Knapp thought, oh, well, yeah, right. But he says, well, I'll I'm an investigative reporter. I'll check it out. So he took one of his buddies and they went out when Bob said to go, where Bob said to go. And, uh, you know, on the day of the week that he said to go and they stood up there and their jaws were slack from watching these things zoom back and forth and up and down. And they went numerous times. And every time Bob said, Bob Lazar said, you know, go here, go, you know, at this time on this day. And every single time they saw them test flying. 
And not only that, but when you talk about the element 115, I mean, there's uh, there's an excellent video. And I'll, again, I'll post a link for you um, of Bob Lazar being interviewed, you know, like 30, 40 years after the fact. And um, uh, uh, it's interesting because everybody, you know, they said that element 115 doesn't exist. Well, it does now. And it shut up all these all the skeptics. They clammed yeah. up because... You know, the periodic table got to the point where, yep, we have uh, there, we've proved the existence of element 115. So Bob was right all along. Wow. Okay. Now I know that Stanton Friedman never believed him, but I do based on that information. I think he's legitimate. And what he said he saw at S4, he saw, you know, uh, he, he back engineered, worked on the back engineering program of these saucers. He talks about the theory of how they function. Uh, I think the guy's legitimate. And, and the thing is, is he never, ever really wanted, uh, you know, to be in the spotlight. I mean, he, he has his own little physics company, uh, you know, on the East Coast with him and his wife that, that they, you know, they've been married for 35 years. And he's just an average guy. And he goes, I never wanted any of this. But the thing is, you know, uh, that's another, uh, to me, that's another evidence of, um, you know, that the guy's legitimate because he didn't want the spotlight. But George Knapp, of course, you know, uh, put him in the spotlight. But, um, uh, you know, he's just, he, he, he never wanted that. And, and that's, that's, you know, it's like a, a lot of the alien abduction uh, uh, situations where the skeptics will say, oh, you know, they're just, they're just looking for their 15 minutes of fame. No, they don't want the spotlight. They don't want to be in the limelight. They don't want, you know, any of that. They just want to be set free from the oppression that they're suffering from these abduction experiences. So that tells that legitimizes that in my mind. I agree. So, <coughs> excuse me. Sorry. Well, so, if you want to tell everybody where to find your website and where they can find the book and thank you for doing this. This was amazing. This was amazing information. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate you having me on your on your your show. Um, it's a real honor for me to, to be able to do this. Uh, you can find my books at www.solar-warden.com. That's my website. Uh, you can find them on Amazon at any of the any of the the online retailers. Uh, they're all there. So if you want to, you know, go to go to um, Amazon, you just just type in Solar Warden Peter Fuller, and and it'll bring up my books. So, um, yeah. All right. Well, th this was awesome, and I'll send you a link when I post it. Okay, perfect. And, and what I'll do is I'll send you all those links that I mentioned. I've got them notarized down here. So I'll, I'll send those to you so that you can uh, post those with the, with the video and, and your, uh, your viewers can, can go and do their own research. That's awesome. I'll do that. I'll wait, I'll wait till you send them and then I'll, I'll, uh, yeah. I'll post the link. Sure, right. I'll send them for you today. All right, thanks, Peter. Thanks, Robert. I really appreciate it. All right, have a good day. You too.